Well, we will be continuing our study in the book of Exodus this morning. Uh, So if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, you should be able to find that on page 57, I believe. We have a large section we'll be looking at. Chapters 15, 22 through the end of chapter 18. And we'll be going through it in a bit of an unorthodox way. I'll introduce that once we get there. <clears throat> but to begin with, we'll read uh, 15, Exodus 15, 22 through 27. And as a reminder, when I finish the reading, part of our call and response, our receiving and responding, is you receive the word of God read and you respond by giving thanks. So I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we will respond, thanks be to God. Exodus fifteen twenty two through 27. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert to Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever heard of the short story by Ray Bradbury, A Sound of Thunder? Uh, It's about an illegal time machine that was made, and for a lot of money, a man named Travis would take people back in time to see the past. Uh, But he warns them of the danger that they must stay on this path. There's an anti-gravity path that they must stay on. The reason that they cannot get off the path path is because if you get off the path, even if you touch a blade of grass, you will change things. Travis explains, say we accidentally kill one mouse by stepping on it. Well, that means all the future families of the families of the families of that one mouse are gone with the stamp of your foot. You've annihilated a billion possible mice. With the stamp of your foot, with the loss of a billion possible mice, well, for every ten mice that die, a fox dies. And for every ten foxes, a lion. So eventually some caveman goes out to hunt for food, but there is no food because you stepped on it. So the caveman starves before he has any children. For from his loins could have sprung ten sons, and from theirs a hundred sons, and onward... A billion people unborn and throttled in the womb. Rome never rises on its seven hills. Step on a mouse and you crush the pyramids. Washington never crosses the Delaware. There is never the United States. So stay on the path, he says. Never leave the path. The story that Ray Bradbury is getting at in his brilliant prose and his wonderful science fiction is dealing with what's been called the great causal chain, that all of life flows from cause and effect. And what he's trying to show you is you work your way back up this causal chain, and everything has an explanation in some previous cause. 
Except, of course, God. God is the great uncaused cause. Which is why the teacher of Ecclesiastes explains this. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Listen again. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Uh, Those verses from Ecclesiastes could be a commentary on the book of Exodus that we have been studying. Because we have to ask the question, why is Israel needing to be Exodused? Why are they in Egypt to begin with? Well, you work your way back the causal chain. Well, Jacob's sons went down for food. And they happened to bump into Joseph. Oh, how did Joseph get to Egypt in bondage? Well, because the wicked son sold him into slavery. Well, why did they hate him? Well, because he was Jacob's favorite son from his favorite wife, Rachel. Well, why did Jacob have other wives? Well, because Laban tricked him. On and on back, we can wend our way through the great causal chain. But long before there was a Jacob, there was God saying to Abraham in Genesis 15, I will send your offspring to a land where they will be in bondage. And I will do that for my purpose, to display my name and my glory. See, friends, on and on we can trace the causal chains, but no matter what you do, you have to deal with the fact of Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, where God declares the end from the beginning. Or Paul in Ephesians 1, 11, that God is the one who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, In other words, friends, there are no rogue molecules or moments in God's world. And Joseph explains this very thing at the end of Genesis. In verse 50, 20, when he says to the brothers, You meant this for evil, but God meant, purposed, planned, carried out it for good, for his good purposes. So why then did Israel suffer bondage all those years? Well, there's many, many, many countless cause and effects. And many, many people making horrible choices. Wicked pharaohs, wicked brothers selling them. Oh yes, of course. But listen to the teacher of Ecclesiastes. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? And in our passage for this morning, God is finally deciding to straighten Israel's path that he had formerly made crooked. And God did so all for his purpose, which we finally we see in our passage this morning. And the larger passage is dealing with the Israelites' wilderness training. Uh, but the argument this morning is this. God makes himself known to and through his people in three ways. God makes himself known through his people's trials, chapter 18, through his people's victories, end of 17, and to his people in discipline, the first 15 through 17, 7. So yes, we are going to go through this passage in reverse order. We're going to start with the effect and work our way back to the cause. That's why we're doing this this morning, okay? So flip over to chapter 18, and we're going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 18 to see the cause, or rather the effect that God has brought about by his causes. 18, 1 through 12. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, the father-in-law of Moses heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel. 
and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom. For Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer. For he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. And Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praised be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the land of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in in the presence of God. Now, I've said earlier in my study, perhaps two of the most important verses for understanding the book of Exodus and what it is communicating is Exodus 9, uh, well, three verses, 14 through 16. Exodus 9, 14 through 16, 15 through 16 read essentially this. For, God explains, why it is he sent Israel down into bondage and why it is he took his long time to slowly pour out his judgment on Egypt. This, for, Pharaoh, I could have struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Our passage is the initial fulfillment of God's purposes. The effect brought about by all those causes. By displaying his power and his name, he brought about the salvation of the Gentile Jethro. See, the chapter begins with Jethro, this Midianite priest, which we've considered before. He he does not be uh, depicted as a believer previously uh, in this book, and yet he comes hearing all that Moses and Israel had done. And we learned this little side note that Zipporah and the two boys had gone back to him. Moses had sent them. We're, we're not sure of other details. But Jethro sends word, I'm bringing your wife and your sons back to you. And Jethro comes out from the wilderness near the mountain of God where Moses had met with Yahweh before. But notice how the narrative is all cast with Jethro as the central character. It's all about Jethro. I mean, there's side notes given to us about other things, but Jethro is the, the centerpiece here. Look again at verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Moses, the first missionary, as it were, is declaring what Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and Egypt for Israel's sake, and he also declares the hardships. He he declares the, the hard road of God's working salvation through judgment in Egypt. All the hardships they met along the way, from the bondage in Egypt to being pursued by Pharaoh, 
to the, the war with the Amalekites we'll read about in a moment, and to the three tests that we'll read about even after that. God has accomplished his divine purpose of having his power and name declared to the nations to bring in Gentile Jethro. See, friends, God does everything for his purposes. Even the testing and trying of his people serve a greater purpose. In an exodus, it's a missionary purpose. God doesn't plan and accomplish some things. God's plan is exhaustive. Ephesians 1.11, God works out all things. Again, there are no rogue molecules or moments in God's universe. His plan is unfolding for his purposes. His plan of salvation. Well, by starting our study at the end of this wilderness training narrative, then, we see part, this little tiny flashpoint of God's purposes, of what he was working towards. So we get just a snippet of why God sent Israel into bondage and why it is he made them suffer and why it is he brought about this long, slow judgment. It was for missionary purposes. It all served to display his power and make his name known. And in particular, that fulfills what God promised to Abraham, was it not? What did God promise Abraham? That through you, a blessing will flow to all nations. And that's what we're seeing here. And friends, Jethro is only the first of many who will also come to the Lord because of his rescuing his people after he sent them into that trouble to begin with. So fast forward into the book of Joshua, and you'll read very similar words from Rahab. Rahab hears about this. And the spies come to her and she hides them. And she says this, I know that Yahweh has given you this land. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you as you came out of Egypt. We heard of it and our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For Yahweh, your God, is God in heaven. Do you see? God's missionary purposes at work. So practically, why, why should this matter? Well, let me apply this to you, friend, this morning. Maybe you're visiting and you're not a Christian. God has displayed his power and glory down through the years. God has working out his plan. The question is, will you respond to God's plan of salvation like Jethro and like Rahab? Will you learn the lesson that they so clearly understood? That God is perfect in justice. But that means that one day his patience will have an expiration date. You see, for hundreds of years, God delayed his judgment on Egypt and on the nations of Canaan. That's what God actually told Abraham back then. He said, the nations are not yet ready for me to judge them. So I'm going to send you into bondage for years to wait and then use you, Israel, as the means of judging the wicked nations in Canaan. So friend, I know that we live in an age that so easily puts God on the shelf We're so quick to trust in half-baked ideas about how all things might possibly exist. We're so good at attempting to ignore the God that we know is there. I mean, we try to silence that knowledge of God with the busyness of life. We try to convince ourselves that as long as we're good people, we have nothing to fear. But friends, to call someone good requires a measuring rod. It requires someone explaining what goodness is. See, to claim that you're good requires you to acknowledge the fact that someone has to determine what good and bad are. See, down through ancient civilizations, there's been many people who were good in those societies. I myself have visited Mayan ruins where they would play a game, and the winner of the game would go to be sacrificed. And they thought that was good. I don't think many of us would think that's good. 
So friend, what is good? By what standard? I have no doubt that everyone in this room is wonderfully good compared to Hitler. But is that the standard? By what standard do we measure these things? So friend, you wake up every day in God's world and you refuse to give him praise and recognition he clearly deserves. If day in and day out you put God on the shelf, all the while assuring yourself that you'll either deal with him later or you're not that concerned about it. Friend, don't you see? All of a sudden the idea that you're good seems dubious. How can we be good if we ignore our maker, our God? Friend, don't put off doing business with God another day. The message of God's salvation through judgment stands before you as it did for Jethro, as it did for Rahab, and countless others after them. Will you acknowledge the Lord, the one who offers you forgiveness if you repent and trust in his son, who came and lived and died for sinners? Well, in our first point, we see God makes himself known through his people's trials. It is those very things that God uses as a means to bring Jethro to himself. And now in our second point, we'll see God makes himself known through his people's victories. But before we get there, there's one more thing we need to see in this section. Uh, The second half of the chapter serves as a kind of prologue. Now, the first half of 18 is an epilogue, you might say, to chapters 1 through 17. As I've just said, this is the, the final effect that those causes brought about. The first half of 18 is the salvation of the Gentiles that God was driving at and the reason he did everything. So it's this kind of epilogue to the first half of the book. The second half of Exodus chapter 18 is like a prologue to the rest of the book. And and what is taking place there in this second half is this. We've seen how God has revealed himself in creation and particularly in salvation through judgment. But now in the second half of chapter 18 and the rest of the book we're going to learn that you need more than just that to get to know this God. You need him revealing himself by way of instruction. So look at chapter 18, verses 19 through 23. Chapter 18, 19 through 23. This is Jethro speaking to Moses. Moses has been overwhelmed by work, doing all the judging, and Jethro gives him wisdom to help better uh, deal with the situation. So the Gentiles are bringing wisdom into Israel, which Jethro applies, and this is part of Jethro's wisdom. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions, and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for all the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all the people will go home satisfied. So you see how that becomes a prologue for the rest of the book? And Lord willing, next week, the giving of the law, or the next two weeks, we'll see this giving of the law at Mount Sinai. One commentator puts it this way. See, this story is here because it paves the way for the fact that Israel is going to be a people ruled by God's law. So Israel was not delivered from Egypt to be autonomous. They were delivered from serving Pharaoh to serve God. 
and they were to do so according to his law. Well, that is chapter 18. Now, backing up to chapter 17, we'll look at the second half of the chapter, and God makes himself known through his people's victories. Look with me, Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. And the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites, uh, the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against Amalek, the Malachites from generation to generation. So in our, our first point, we saw how Jethro and Rahab praise God because of his deliverance of Israel, the victories God gave to his people. But here we see it's that God himself actually is the one who wins the victory. That's the point of this section. Uh, they're in the wilderness now, and it literally reads that Amalek came and fought with Israel. And the challenge here is there's debates about who the Amalekites were. Uh, see, Esau had a grandson named Amalek, but there were also Amaleks referenced in Abraham's day. So we're not exactly sure which group this is. Uh, that's why some have said perhaps this is a loose confederation of desert raiders. Regardless of the details of who Amalek are, they approach Israel and attack them. And Moses says, tomorrow he will stand on the hill with the staff of God in his hand. And then we're introduced to Joshua for the first time, and he's told to choose some men and go fight. And then the narrator explains to us in verse 11, as long as Moses held up his, the NIV says, hands, the Israelites were winning. But when he lowered them, they would lose. So is this a weird magic trick? Does Moses have magic hands? Uh, Is this prayer? Well, no, that's not actually what's going on. Some have tried to say it's Moses' hands up in prayer, but that's not actually what's taking place. Uh, The NIV hides the fact that it actually says, Moses' hand. And the picture is that Moses' hand is holding up the staff of God, the rod of God's divine judgment. And as long as God's rod of judgment is lifted up, then Israel wins. But as gravity takes effect and his hand gets tired, they start to lose. And back and forth he goes. So this is a very practical passage. I'm sure there's all sorts of application we could have about prayer, but that's not what's taking place here. It's gravity. The picture is being taught to us that only God gets the victory. When God is raised up, his people win. When he is not, his people fail. So Aaron and Hur come around, park him on a rock, and they hold up his hands. The picture we're supposed to get is, by now, he can't hold the staff anymore, so he's doing this, and they're propping up the staff. So it's not praying, it is gravity. It is God teaching his people that I have to be lifted up, that it is my power that wins. But it's interesting is that this is a bit of a shift from what has taken place earlier. 
If you remember back in chapter 14, Moses says to Israel, and they complain, remember, their back is up against the Red Sea, and they have Pharaoh bearing down on them, and they cry out treasonously, would that we have died in Egypt, it would have been better for us. And Moses says what? Just stand there and be quiet. See the salvation the Lord will work for you today. Israel does nothing. They stand there, and they watch God work. But here, it's a little different. God has delivered them from Egypt, and he's training them in the wilderness. So now they really do have to fight. Joshua is down there actively fighting, but the victory belongs to the Lord. That's the message of the text. Uh, the, The point is that they will have to walk in faith each day, but the victory belongs to the Lord. As long as he is lifted up in Israel, they will move forward. But when he is brought low, they will be crushed. So, this important moment here is so important that God tells Moses to write it down and rehearse it in Joshua's ear because the reason he has to rehearse it in his ear is not because of the victory, but it's because Amalek is an eternal enemy of God. Did you catch that? It's rather interesting. I think sometimes we read this, we we try to focus on uh, the victory is what was important. That's not what the text says. What the text says is, this is important because... I will completely block out Amalek from under heaven. That's what Moses is supposed to rehearse for Joshua. Well, why? Why is he supposed to be so passionate about this particular group? Well, Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19 explains that Amalek didn't fear God, that they came up from behind and tried to attack Israel as the stragglers. But I think in order to understand why, we have to back up just a step. And part of the reason I went backwards is to show you a connection. So far in chapter 17 and 18, there's some really important parallelism that's going on. Uh, Tim Chester has has drawn this out for us really well. He says, in both stories, we have foreigners that come out to Israel. Amalek and then Jethro. And again, in Hebrew, Amalek is singular. It's one. So the picture is, is a parallel. He come out to them. In both stories, men are chosen for a specific task. Here, they're chosen to fight. In chapter 18, they're chosen to judge. In both stories, Moses commences his work tomorrow, and the work goes all day until evening. And then in both stories, we read that Moses is tired and in need of assistance. What is the parallelism teaching us? Well, it's teaching us about the impact of God's people on the nations. Remember, God told Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. That's why these two chapters are put in parallel. We're getting a picture of the reason he has to rehearse why you must judge Amalek is because Amalek has cursed God and God's people, and therefore they are to be cursed. Wiped off, blotted out of the face of the earth, this is in Deuteronomy. Whereas Jethro comes and he blesses God's people. He praises God, and he gets to be blessed by having a meal in the presence of God and Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel. So that's what's going on here. This blessing and cursing that gets mediated by God's people. The the challenge with applying that for us today, though, is how do we as New Covenant people mediate God's blessings and cursings? Well, the first thing we have to acknowledge is the difference, the shift from Old Covenant to New. In the Old Covenant, God's people were a nation. They're going to be a theocracy, a nation with God as their king governed by God. In the New Covenant, we're members of local churches. 
And those churches are international. They're all over the world. Uh, So clearly there's a difference. But, unfortunately, there are some Christians these days who tend to try and draw far too much, I would say, from this Old Testament imagery. And they can tend to make it sound like we need to pursue political power. Uh, Some call this a Christian nationalism or something of the kind. And I would say even worse is that the so-called conservative secular culture has heard this narrative, and they play into it. So to get very specific, take Tucker Carlson recently. He was slandering some well-known Christians on his show. Now, of course, much that Tucker says, uh, Christians would agree, is depressing. Uh, There there are so many things that he addresses which we find grotesque in in culture, and and we lament the, the grief and the sinfulness and wickedness in this culture. But Tucker's combative narrative just cannot be justified, according to the New Testament. If you add to this the ironic revelations recently of Tucker's text, text messages showing that we all should have known that he is two-faced beyond measure. He is not a journalist. He's playing to the crowd. He's pumping up his base for a profit. Now, please understand, I actually think all the talking heads on all the cable news stations are all ridiculous. I reject them all. If you happen to be sitting here this morning, you have no idea who Carlson is or no idea what this recent story is, God bless you. May your tribe increase. But here's my larger point. Friends, the conservative so-called media cycle that tries to loop in this culture warrior narrative that can grab Christians because so much of what they say, critiquing the vileness of modern culture is true, friends, be so careful. Because that is not the message of the New Testament covenant community. Contrast Tucker with Jesus and the Beatitudes. This is what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those of you who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a far cry from much that gets peddled in the news, friends. So Christians, don't you see The brash message of talking heads on cable news is unrecognizable when contrasted with the New Testament and how the covenant community of God mediates the blessings and cursings to the world. You can also listen to Peter. 1 Peter 4, 12-13, he writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See, Peter continues by explaining that if we suffer as Christians, we are to praise God because we suffer as those who bear his name. And then Peter is so brash, you might say, as to go on to say this, that just maybe when we Christians suffer, it is God's act of discipline, of cleansing the house of God first. See, while it's true that Israel mediated the blessings and cursings of God with actual fights, with actual victories, 
Christians in the new covenant mediate God's blessings and cursings not in physical or cultural wars. Rather, we do it with the message of the cross. The message which is foolishness to the world because it is only made sense by the wisdom that is from above. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17, that friends, our relationship to the world around us is this, that to those who are perishing, we're an aroma that brings death. But to those who are being saved, we are an aroma that brings life. So friends, only insofar as those who are in Christ, faithfully proclaiming the message of the cross, are we those who rightly mediate the blessings and cursings of God to this culture. Blessings for all those who repent and trust in Christ because they will find him to be an all-sufficient Savior and cursings for all those who reject him because they will find him to be a just and faithful judge. The question for God's people is this. How will we go about being those who mediate God's blessings and cursings to this world? How can we make sure that we're not captivated by the message of the culture that has co-opted a segment of Christianity? Instead, we get back to the message of the cross. The upside-down ethic of the kingdom, as it has been called. Of course, the wickedness in our culture should cause us to grieve. It should cause us to lament and mourn. Yes, but friends, it should drive us to prayer, not to the cranky cultural commentators. Well, we've seen God make himself known through his people's trials, and we've seen God make himself known through his people's victories. Now we will see God make himself known through his people's discipline. Flip back to chapter 15. One more time, verses 22 through 27. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert ashore. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why they called the place Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Notice what the reverse order has done by showing us what was the message that Jethro said to Moses that he was to do? Teach them the instructions and decrees of the Lord. They should have already known it, because weeks before, God himself told him that they needed to heed his instructions and decrees. They should have already known it. Well, in this section here, between God's victory over Egypt and God's victory over the Amalekites, we're going to find three testings. Three times the word test is used. God is testing his people. And here, Israel, three days after that Red Sea deliverance, has not had any water. They finally find water, but it's undrinkable. It could have been poisoned. Now, lest we forget... What we said at the beginning, what the Lord makes crooked, 
no one can make straight. So friends, we must remember every move in every direction that Israel takes in the wilderness is led by whom? God. In the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. So why is Israel three days in a desert wilderness without water that they can drink? God. He is the one who is leading them. That's why verse 25 says, Yahweh put them to the test. God is intentionally testing Israel, and they horrendously fail the test. It says they grumble against Moses. And again, at one level, the human level, we clearly understand that. If you're three days in a desert wilderness without water, I think you'd be a little grumbly as well, would you not? But remember, these are three days in the desert following the pillar of cloud, being buffeted by the pillar of fire every night. For three days, they apparently walk in absolute silence. Not a word of prayer, not a word of request. For three days, they let their physical thirst drive them to an outburst of anger, revealing their far deeper spiritual drought. They've seen God's power over the Nile and the waters. They've seen his power in the waters of the Red Sea. Do they think he has no power over the rest of the waters? How is it that following Yahweh's presence in the pillar before them, they grumble instead of pray? But the moment we ask that question, I think we make ourselves guilty. Do we not? Friends, how often do we fret and freak out rather than go to the Lord in prayer? How many situations and circumstances and people do we trust in? And when we let down we get let down. We, we feel as though our world is collapsing. But we utter not one word to the Lord in prayer. Jesus would say, you have not because you ask not. So let us be careful and slow to judge the failures of Israel in this middle section. Israel grumbles to Moses. And Moses does precisely what they should have done all along. He cries out to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord shows him, Something as simple as a piece of wood that he throws into the water, curing it. Lord is sovereign over the waters. The Lord explains, this is what I have done. I have put Israel to the test. If they listen to me carefully and if they do what is right, then I will not put on them the diseases I put on Egypt. Do you catch that? God is saying to them, I test you and you failed. So let me make it really clear now. If you do what I've commanded, and if you trust me, then I will not give you the diseases of Egypt. So in case there was any question, God spells it out for them specifically. Israel should have trusted God, but they didn't. So God spells it out and says, okay, move ahead to the next test, which is now Exodus chapter 16. Let's look at verses 1 through 18. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much 
as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said all this to the Israelites. In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses said, You will know that it is the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. We'll pause there. So, first test, food. Or first test, water, failed. Second test, after God says, this is the instructions, here's how you're supposed to do this, instant failure yet again. And it's amazing to see their self-deception. Do you see that? Would that we have died in Egypt if you wouldn't have brought us out. We used to sit there lounging around in, in you know, chairs in the open sun next to the, the Nile River eating pots of meat. We didn't read about the pots of meat. Where did that come from? Friends, we are so talented at self-deception, at convincing ourselves of things that are completely ridiculous. But I know what it is to be hangry, you know, so hungry that you're angry. But this is next-level crazy. They say, if only Yahweh would have slain us in Egypt. Do you see that? They're claiming that Yahweh is evil for bringing them out to die slowly. That he would have been a better God had he just killed them quickly with the Egyptians. And yet, marvelously, after God has just told them, if they obey, he will not bring the diseases on them. God doesn't, just he, he acts. He doesn't even wait for Moses to call out this time. He just tells Moses, okay, I'm going I'm to send bread. And I'm going to send quail. And he feeds them. Daily they go out and collect. And as you go through the rest of the chapter, they're supposed to go out and get just enough for that day. And don't keep any over, because if you keep it over, you have to trust the Lord every single day. And some keep some more over, and it gets maggots in it. And uh, why don't they listen? And then he says on the Sabbath, don't go out on the Sabbath. There's not going to be any. Take enough on Friday, and it'll stay for the next day. Sure enough, some people go out. And so the Lord says, why won't these people listen? How long will they refuse to listen? So two tests in, and they have failed miserably. What about the third? We'll go to Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. The third and final test in this wilderness training story. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for the water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, 
Is the Lord among us or not? Well, they saw his provision. They saw his presence in the pillar. They saw his extra measure of revealing his glory with the manna. They asked the question, is Yahweh even with us or not? It is a stunning set of verses. Their complete lack of faith. Now, I think most Christians in the room would rightly cringe at the idea of doubting God with such words as they have in these three texts. Would you just kill us? You'd have been a better God if you killed us quickly. Oh, we rightly cringe, do we not? But I think if we're honest too, friends, we can be so quick to grumble and complain. God, why have you made this path of mine crooked? See, it's interesting. Israel's fully aware of the fact that it's Yahweh. Uh, they're, they're quite clear. It's Yahweh who made their path crooked. And friends, I'll just be honest. I worry that we moderns have a difficult time with this. And it may be even more dangerous to default to this idea of trying to detach God from the crooked paths of life. Uh, ironically, sometimes as Christians, we can try to do so to protect God. And yet, God is himself the one who says that he makes path crooked. Job lost everything, the death of all 10 of his children. His response wasn't to distance God. His response was incredible, one of worship. Yahweh gave and Yahweh took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, Christian, we do not honor God by trying to pretend that there are rogue molecules and moments in life that we need to shield him from. Israel's suffering in Egypt their thirst, their hunger are all parts of God making their path crooked. And he's using it for his purpose. Christians through the ages have called these dark providences. And Ecclesiastes 7:14 again, when times are good, be happy. But when they're bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. The question is, will we respond like Israel or will we respond in faith? Will we respond in trusting that God is good? Now, the response that God gives Moses, however, is stunning. Look again at verses 5 and 6. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people and take with you some of the elders of the people, or of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock. Here's the scene. And we don't know if the, the pillar actually moved or not, but the, the language is official courtroom language. And the call is, go out and call the elders. They are the official witnesses. And Moses, you do this in front of the people, and you walk out, and we're going to hold court in the desert. And who is on trial? Not Israel, but God. God says he will stand before the rock, and Moses is supposed to be the judge, and he's to take God's rod of divine judgment, and he is to strike the rock that God is standing before. It is a stunning scene. God in the dock. Israel has failed three times, even testing God, complaining against him, bringing a lawsuit against him. But God says, I will stand trial. And it's a fascinating thing. This is why the Psalms speak of God as our rock and our salvation. You see, it's the people who are guilty. They rebel. They refuse to trust God. And yet God himself receives the blow of justice. Ed Clowney has written on this better than any. He put it this way. 
the God who is the rock of Israel, their Savior, the God of mercy who bears his own judgment for the sin of his people. The people had cried in an accusation of unbelief, is the Lord among us or not? Oh yes, the Lord was among them. Among them in a way they could not have imagined. There he stood upon the rock, not only among them, but in their place, bearing their condemnation. You see, friends, the Exodus is all about how God makes himself known. How he makes himself known in making crooked paths for his people and delivering them from those crooked paths in his way and in his timing. God makes himself known in the victories that his people, he works for them. God makes himself known in his fatherly discipline and testing of his people because he loves every son whom he chastens. But most of all, God makes himself known by sending his son to take the blow of justice that we deserved. So that rightly did Moses sing in Deuteronomy 32, 3-4, Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. So friends, may we consider what God has done and praise him, even when our paths are crooked with testing, even when we don't understand them, because all his ways are just. Would you pray with me? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can trust you. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us so much more because it was not merely the rock that you stood on that was struck. It was your eternal Son incarnate as Jesus came and took the curse that we deserved. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And he was cursed for his people. So Lord, would you help us to trust you in the crooked paths of life? Would you help us to see them as revealing yourself to us that we might trust you better? We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.